This episode of Forward Guidance is brought to you by YCharts. I am joined by Andy Constant of Damp Spring and Michael Howell of Cross Border Capital. Uh, so great to have you both here. We're going to be diving deep into the topic of liquidity topic. Very easy to talk about. A lot of people in finance talk about it, but very hard to understand it and its impact on asset markets. And I think you, too, to some degree, have a, have a different view. Uh, so, Michael, how, can you briefly just tell us how you think about liquidity, how you define it, and your outlook for liquidity going forward? And then, Andy, I want to hear your view. Yeah, sure, Jack. Um, great to be here. Good to touch base with Andy again. Um, I suppose we ought to call this the uh, the X show because uh, X is now the symbol of the uh, of the month or the week, and uh, we're both X Salomon brothers. So uh, I think there's a there's a good connection there. Uh, liquidity is a subject dear to my heart. Uh, liquidity was something that I learned uh, about a lot when I was at Salomon Brothers. It was the key factor uh, in terms of uh, our understanding of markets and the liquidity concept that we uh, that we look at at Cross Border Capital. Uh, sort of echoes from those days. And what it looks at is the flow of money uh, through global financial markets. It's really the flow of cash and credit. And it's we think of it very much as a measure of balance sheet capacity. In other words, it's the ability of the financial system to effectively roll over debt. Uh, and that's really the key function that it currently fulfills. Now, what I'd like to say probably as an outset is that liquidity in our terms is, as I say, a measure of balance sheet capacity. It is not the traditional uh, M1 or M2 money supply measures that people look at. It is not this concept of Fed liquidity that is uh, airing on Twitter and whatever. Uh, what we're looking at is a very different metric. Uh, some of those factors are included in that, but it's broadly speaking money in the financial markets. We differentiate that from money in uh, the real economy and it's not just money that is contributed by banks. We look at central banks, we look at conventional banks, and we look at shadow banks. Thanks. Andy, how do you think about liquidity? Yeah, thanks for having me, Jack. And it is great to get beyond with both of you. Uh, we didn't overlap at Solomon, but we know many of the same people. And, uh, you know, actually, I didn't know anything about liquidity when I uh, left Solomon. I learned most of that from my time at Bridgewater and uh, Brevin Howard in terms of looking at macro. And I've been doing that for a couple of decades now. So um, I, the way I describe it is slightly different. Um, firstly, I agree with Michael that the measure of liquidity that is so popular on um, Twitter, this net liquidity that you know, basically evaluates the Fed's balance sheet and often distills just to bank reserves um, is not what we're talking about. Now, those are those numbers are super important. I'm not saying they're not important. Um, they're part of our toolkit. Um, the way I think about liquidity is just a diff uh, using everything that Michael just described and another lev um, level, which is risk. So what I care about is the capacity of the world to absorb risk. And so the composition of what constitutes assets and what is available to provide liquidity for those assets is to me the most important thing and where I focus my attention. So it's just a 
an enhancement using some of the same data in terms of liquidity uh, that Michael does, but to me has a better connection to asset prices. Andy, let's just drill down on this simplified model of Fed liquidity where you take the Fed's balance sheet or the Fed's balance sheet uh, and you incorporate the Treasury General account, the reverse repo facility, the level of bank reserves, or as we see in this chart right now, you look at other, you know, the European Central Bank, the Swiss Bank, and you that's in the blue line. You aggregate it and then you put it against the S&P 500 and it actually looks like it correlates quite well. It hasn't this year at all as that liquidity has gone down as a lot of central banks are rolling off their balance sheet and the S&P 500 has, you know, it's been exploding higher. But, you know, Andy, please critique this level of analysis, which, you know, you're on Twitter, you know, is, is, all, is very common. And uh, don't hold back any punches, please. Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to do when you look at charts of this nature is to recognize what they are. Seeing that there are dual axes is always a red flag to me. Um, seeing that they are in level space and not return space is a, another red flag. And for me, what's important is um, whether the relationship works is is a strong relationship that correlates to market pricing um, is certainly an important thing. Um, I use relationships that lead and lag and are coincident with markets changes as well. But this just doesn't make sense to me. The level of correlation that happened prior to the red circle, people look at those two graphs and say, wow, it's very correlated at something like 97% is some the number I've heard. Um, and I've actually done that math. And it, yeah, it's really, really core. Those lines, those levels are really, really correlated. The problem is that they are correlations of levels versus correlations of changes. And the correlations of changes are radically different and essentially zero. There's something called co-integrated series um, in which you would expect very high correlation of levels, but there is no predictive value in that, except to say that they are co-integrated. Um, and uh, anyway, so that's some of the nerdy stuff. Um, the more important thing is that, you know, these levels of balance sheet matter and you know, liquidity matter because what happens as, say, for instance, U.S. bank reserves go up, which would generally be bullish for equities, perceived by this measure would be perceived bullish for equities. Um, it really matters what happens to the various actors and what they do when they get money or have access to money. Um, and so there's just very little causal relationship with an increase in uh, bank reserves to uh, financial markets that would be expected to have a high correlation. There is causality, but it's weak. Thanks. Uh, Michael, I want to get your thoughts. A lot of investors have been kind of caught in the jaws of that chart where, oh, liquidity is going down because of bank reserves. So uh, I'm going to sell all my stocks. And that has, has not been the good move. First, yeah, yeah I want to get your, your critique of that kind of simplified model. And then also, can you comment on what it's like where you know the concept of global liquidity used to be quite niche and you, know, you were t talking about it and doing a lot of work in it. And, and now it's become quite common. But what is it like? Oh, it's become a lot of people are talking about it, but it's it's simplified and they're missing a lot, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I, I suppose the question is, where, where do you start the critique? Uh, there's a lot of things that are wrong with it. 
I mean, one of the factors that you can sort of throw up immediately is that uh, within that uh, statistic that you show, there's a big dollar effect. So, you know, that may be overwhelming uh, a lot of the other uh, messages or, or, or whatever they're coming from the data. So you've, you've got to strip that out. It's not also uh, the correct thing to do to compare uh, central bank balance sheets of different economies and lump them together because the role of the central bank in each economy kind of differs. So the institutional structure is uh, varies country by country. And so it's simply not correct to add these things to, together as as he's done. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors. As Andy says as well, it's kind of difficult to see true causation there in terms of uh, particularly when you look at the statistical measures that people throw out i mean what you what you're getting is actually what's called spurious correlation so uh, i think you can see that where there's been the sort of recent breakdown uh, between the two series uh, there is however uh, an important role that central banks play and one of the things that we've been maintaining certainly for many years now is that uh, if you take the fed as an example but other central banks apply as well Central banks are trying to become outsized players in markets, and that's their kind of role since the global financial crisis. The issue is that if you go back pre-GFC, the central banks had a very small effect uh, or much more modest effect on financial markets. In many ways, I would argue that part of the reason that the GFC occurred was the Federal Reserve had lost control of the dollar credit systems. And what they've done since the GFC is to wrestle control back. So it's certainly true that the central banks are becoming more important and the Federal Reserve is clearly a big player in that. And, you know, I'll come quietly along the argument that says, you know, if the Federal Reserve expands its balance sheet, if it's injecting liquidity, the market is likely to go up to some extent. Where I disagree is the people that completely dismiss the role of central banks, which is clearly wrong. Uh, there's been a number of uh, sort of uh, uh, entries on Twitter or social media, which are saying that central banks don't matter, uh, that reserves are a spurious concept. That's clearly not true. Central banks are important. But as Andy rightly says, that they are part of the puzzle. What we need to do is to have a much broader view to take into account international, which is what we do, also to take into account things like the repo markets, the general wholesale markets. The liquidity is a complex factor, but because it's complex, it doesn't mean to say you shouldn't drill into the into the weeds and, uh, and try and understand what's going on. And that's what we try and do. Global liquidity is a very important concept, but there are clearly other elements out there. And as Andy correctly says, I mean, it's about understanding risk premia, term premia uh, within markets. And, you know, I think as we one of the things we probably agree on totally is one of the great mispricings uh, in the moment or anomalies in the markets is the fact that term premia on the world's most important asset, the 10 year treasury, is almost at all time lows. And that is a really a head scratching uh, factor, which is clearly distorting the markets right now. The central banks have some role in that. But there's also another element, which is looking at the supply of duration in the markets. And that, I think, is also key, which, you know, I welcome Andy's view. I just want to ask, uh, Michael, what factors are propelling global liquidity? Your measure, you have a global liquidity index, GLI, that is going up. Uh, what measures are driving that liquidity up that is not bank reserves? Because we know that bank reserves are, are going down, uh, at least globally. Okay, well, let, let me just say first up that it's not necessarily the case that uh, the bank reserves are the key thing within this. 
what we're trying to argue is that it's the liquidity injections by the central banks that are the key thing to watch. That isn't necessarily the same thing as bank reserves. The key point in understanding this. If you look at how the financial system or the money markets work, bank reserves are a reflection, ultimately, of the amount of money, money that's in money markets in different economies. I mean, that's, a, I think, a given. But the question to ask is, how does it get there? And it gets there to a large extent through the operations of uh, the Federal Reserve, in the case of the US, and the Treasury. So they, they're both interacting through payments they're making within the system. Now, the key aggregate to look at when you're looking at the Fed balance sheet is Fed credit, how the Federal Reserve is supplying liquidity into the system. And what we're trying to understand is the, uh, if you like, in this particular instance or this example, the net liquidity that the Federal Reserve is putting into money markets. Now, if the Federal Reserve is acting uh, on the money markets, it's buying and selling assets. And through that process, it is expanding or helping to expand the size of the financial sector balance sheet, or it's, it's influencing the size of the central, uh, the sorry, the financial sector balance sheet. So when we're talking about liquidity and what the Federal Reserve is injecting, we're principally talking about measures of Fed credit. Okay, so that could be buying treasuries. It could involve ultimately, if they're destroying credit, selling treasuries. It could involve discount window lending. Uh, it could be repo lending. Uh, a number of sources can uh, you know, can come, come through on that basis. So what we're saying is that we're looking at that. Now, it's not entirely clear that if you take those measures across the major central banks, that that, is, that number is going down. Um, I would argue in the case of the US recently, it's flatlined. But the key point that we've been making since our global liquidity measure bottomed in October of last year, which pretty much I think uh, was you know, a little bit ahead of when the markets began to bottom. But that turning point is liquidity is a fundamental one. Now, what is driving that? Partly it is the central banks uh, and partly it is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve stopped withdrawing liquidity on our view around early October in the wake of the British guilt crisis. And I keep saying that was a wake-up call for central banks globally because it was a cathartic event. Had that same event, as bad as it was, happened in the US, uh, in the US there'd have been another GFC-like uh, event because it was, it was significant, dramatic. Central banks... For central banks, that was a wake-up call, and the Federal Reserve, in, uh, in, on our reckoning, effectively uh, engineered a flatlining of reserves from that point. After the SVB uh, failure, they began to increase liquidity more aggressively through discount window lending uh, support, uh, generally for the, for the regional banking system. But then you've also got on top of that what other central banks were doing. And I'm going to cite three areas here. One is what the Bank of Japan was doing. The Bank of Japan has upped its liquidity injections significantly through this year. Okay, um, last year the Bank of with the Bank of Japan, although it was buying JGB's Japanese government bonds, it was actually withdrawing liquidity from the system through other uh, mechanisms uh, on its balance sheet. But effectively, it was destroying liquidity then. It is expanding liquidity now. The People's Bank of China has injected a lot of liquidity this year, although as we speak, they've just come out of a period of about two to three weeks where they've actually uh, taken a huge amount of liquidity out of their markets in order to try and protect uh, the integrity of the yuan. So that is a bit of a stop go. But, you know, 
they have been expanding liquidity. Then you've got on the third aspect, a lot of the other regional uh, Asian uh, central banks who have been seeing increasing foreign exchange reserves, which they've been monetizing. And that has caused many of those economies to actually expand liquidity. So if you look at that pocket of central bank liquidity globally, I would argue it's broadly speaking going up, but it is not going up, I come quietly here, uh, at the pace it was going up some months ago. It has cooled off, but it's still expanding. That's number one. Point number two is that you've also got uh, alongside that a collapse in bond volatility. Now, one of the things that we look at, which is integral to the supply of credit within the system, is, thing, is something called the, well, we look at the move index, which is a measure of bond market volatility. Now, the way that credit is created increasingly in the world economy through global banks is, a, is essentially against collateral. So in other words, loans are made against collateral. And if the pool of collateral is growing or the efficacy of that pool is growing, there'll be more credit. What governs the efficacy of the pool is the size of haircuts that are given by credit providers. And those haircuts, to a very large extent, are influenced by uh, bond volatility. The move index is a key metric there. Uh, when I was uh, active and more active in the bond markets, uh, when the move index moved uh, above 150, um, that was always assumed to be the end of the world. It touched 200 or tested 200 earlier this year. Uh, one of the ways, a simple way of reading that is to knock uh, the last figure off the move index and think of that as a percentage of bond volatility a year. So 200 equates to basically, very roughly speaking, 20% uh, annualized bond volatility across the curve. Uh, it's since dropped from 200 to around 100 as we speak. So you've got a halving of bond volatility in practice through that period. That is a significant boost to liquidity conditions globally. A big thank you to YCharts for sponsoring today's episode. YCharts aims to help you achieve all your investing goals packaged into one simple solution. With industry-leading research and communication tools, you can win new business and emphasize the strengths of your investment strategies to clients and prospects. The user-friendly interface helps you save hours of time each week while discovering better, more effective investment ideas. YCharts is a fully web-based application with pre-built templates to kickstart and simplify your investment research so you can act on an idea right when the light bulb flicks on. I've gotten a tremendous amount of value out of YCharts, and I think you will too. So click the link in the description and you can start your free YCharts trial today. And what's more, if you're a new customer, you can get 15% off your initial subscription. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. I just want to give Andy a chance to, to respond. Before we even talk about, Andy, the, the decline in bond volatility, I know you got a lot of thoughts on, on that. When Michael uh, makes the point that global liquidity is increasing, not just from the Federal Reserve, but all central banks, uh, and then in private, we include the private sector as well. Do you agree with that, number one? Number two, what Michael says, the Federal Reserve stopped withdrawing liquidity around September and October, probably October around the guild crisis, which, yes, was the uh, you know so far bottom in the S&P 500. Do you, do you agree with that? And anything else you want to respond to? Sure. I mean, a couple of things. I guess the first thing I would say is um, I think uh, I think liquidity is um, that when when one tries to use liquidity as a uh, as a um, reference for equities, 
um, it's missing a significant portion of what matters. Um, liquidity applies across all risky assets, and 30-year bonds are risky assets, commodities are risky assets, gold, Bitcoin, any alternative asset is a risky asset. Cash is not a risky asset. And, you know, it's. I think it's important to recognize that uh, if it were the case that liquidity was uh, being added significantly or in the case of 2022, being removed significantly, all assets should be res- respond to that. And I, so I think there's something fairly different going on in equities right now, which has to doesn't actually have anything to do with liquidity. Um, that's my own opinion. I think it has to do with uh, the high nominal GDP that uh, is occurring in the mar- in the in the real economy that's driving earnings expectations higher. Uh, there is an aspect of liquidity in that bonds are in short supply are in short have very little supply, and so their term premium is very very low. And so that's supporting equity multiples. So there's it's a it's a bunch of moving parts. But I wanted to just start with that. Um, now, as it relates to Michael's the expert in terms of you know where every pocket of global liquidity is coming from, and I respect that, and I see all the same things he sees, including the most recent uh, draw of liquidity from China. Um, I'm not, I don't have any real synthesis on that. That's beyond what Michael's charts show. It, the, it appears that liquidity has um, uh, stopped being taken away from markets. The way I measure that, uh, just in the U.S., for instance, is I think that was done because the fiscal side decided not to borrow anymore, not because of any actions the Fed took until March. Prior to March, uh, the TGA spend down, which was regular old spending. There wasn't any new spending that happened, but it wasn't being financed and so it didn't have any demand on liquidity uh, to create new issue bonds to fund the spending. And so I think it was more a fiscal side that is what impacted uh, liquidity in the October to March timeframe. Uh, and then we had March. And clearly, uh, prior to March, the, 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 the Tempest in a Teacup banking scare, um, Global U.S. banks had been aggressively selling their treasuries, which, you know, puts pressure on assets, broadly speaking. Um, And they stopped and they stopped because they could borrow against them um, using the uh, BTFP program. And I think that's an overhang of potential future bond um, supply because a variety of reasons which we can go into. But um, I think that also happen. So now we come to June and the debt ceiling is gone. The TGA is zero. And a lot of people focused on the TGA being um, the growth of the TGA as being a drag on liquidity. And this comes to my risk point. On May 2nd, the government said how they were going to fund after the debt ceiling came out. And that was by issuing a tremendous amount of bills and the least amount of uh, treasury bonds that they've issued since the um, uh, COVID crisis. It's a very short duration. Pay me back in in 90 days instead of 10 years or 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Anything less than a year, basically. And heavily into the four-week, two-month, eight-week, and 12-week 
sector. And the great thing is that money was already saved in the reverse repo program. And so by basically taking money from the reverse repo program on the Fed's balance sheet to the uh, Treasury General account, they were able to build that with no impact on liquidity at all when you think about it as a risk liquidity. Um, and you know maybe that's partly what's going on with the, the, the deviation between the S&P and that graph you put up, but there's no negative impact on assets when you tap the RRP to fund the TGA. And so I think can I, that- Can I just throw, the interesting question is what, why then? Why, why did they do that? If QT that is, is the interesting question, that's for sure. If QT is the is the is the goal here, is the, as people advertise, why is it the that the Fed and the Treasury kind of got together and seemingly have decided to try and flatline the level of liquidity or least flatline the level of liquidity in markets? Because that's kind of curious. If if the balance sheet is, is supposed to have this big effect on demand. I, I agree with you. I don't think it is the Treasury and the Fed getting together. I think it is the Treasury. Well, we'll see. Later this month, later early next month, we get information about what the next phase of financing the government will be. And we'll see if they keep trying to fund with bills instead of bonds. But a cynic would say that Janet Yellen is in a political office and by using bills and tapping the RRP, she boosts liquidity. She doesn't, it's not, a, it's not a boost of liquidity. She doesn't tap liquidity. She has, you know, has makes no impact with her filling the TGA and she's doing it for political reasons. I don't think that's right, but it's certainly possible. Um, you know, I don't see the political justification for goosing the market 15 months ahead of the election. Talk to me six months ahead of the election, and maybe I can be cynical. But 15 months, I don't get it. So my basic view is um, the RRP is interest-bearing, and it is paid by the Fed. And the Fed, up till, you know, the rate hikes be really got going, was a net contributor to the um, Treasury for the interest they received on their SOMA portfolio net of the cost of the RRP. And so now that it's higher, the government doesn't get that financing. Um, and in fact, the, the, the Fed actually, actually has to start taking deferred law assets, de creating deferred assets for the loss that they're taking. And that's a hit. And so the RRP is terrible financing for the government. Yes. So might as well replace it with bills. So I, I think that's a good fundamental reason to try to tap the RRP. And the only way you can tap it is with bills, really. Um, tapping it with bonds means it's, it's anyway, I can take you through that mechanism, but it's a mess. Um, tapping it with bills makes a lot of sense. But the curve is heavily inverted. As Michael and I have both been discussing, the term premium on long-term bonds is extremely negative. The taxpayers deserve to be financing longer term instead of financing on bills. So we'll see how that develops. The one last point I'll make as it relates to, well, two small points. One is by issuing duration, they do uh, compete with the banks who were in trouble. 
And so it's possible that back in May, when they decided how to fund the TGA, they worried about competing with banks unwinding their duration exposure. Now that's basically gone now. They still have the overhang, the banks do, and some are close to failing like PacW was. Um, but that might've been a contributing factor. Um, so when I put it all together, um, I'm very interested to see how they behave for their next quarter. And the most important thing when you think about that is how large the deficit is getting. Like, you know, we're going to have a $1.4 trillion deficit this year, and it's going to be higher next year. And so issuance is going to be sizable. And it just doesn't make sense for it to be in bills when you add up all of those things. Um, the, the, print, the main principle written by the uh, Treasury about how they issue is essentially to get liquidity where it's available and not mark in time. So I don't think they're betting that long-end rates are going to fall, and so they're going to wait um, anyway, if they do, it's extremely expensive given how short-term rate, how high short-term rates are. So when I add all those things up, you know, it made sense in May to schedule it the way they do. It doesn't really make sense to me on a going forward basis. And maybe that's a catalyst that will um, reverse some of this negative term premium in bonds. So there was a, a ton of cash in, let's say, 2021. And even though there's a lot of bill issuance, there was not enough. So bills were trading at a, a discount to the reverse repo facility. So all this money went into the reverse repo facility. And uh, now the Treasury is issuing bills to sort of kind of suck that liquidity out. And you know, Andy, you caught yourself, you said it's they're adding liquidity by issuing uh, Treasury bills. Oh, wait, they're not adding it. They're actually just not tapping it. But I would say, you know, like a money saved is, is money earned. So it's, it's kind of, you know, net net the, the same thing. And governments typically, yeah, want to issue long-term debt so they secure long-term financing. And that's true even with a normal yield curve. With an inverted yield curve, they're paying more to issue short-term debt than they would if they issued long. One thing on that point, yeah, yeah. Um, over the last many, many decades, the government financed itself pretty consistently. This is not like some, you know, that they behave unusually. They issue about 15 to 20% of the outstanding federal debt in bonds, in bills, and the rest in bonds. And right now they're at 20%. You got a great chart on this, Andy. So you look at that, those blue bars, all of a sudden, and the last bar, which is not on that chart, is for this quarter, it's going to be above 20%. Only during financial crises are bills above issuance outstanding above 20%. And that's because they need the money quickly and they tap whatever liquid, the easiest form of liquidity possible. Um, but then it immediately starts being refinanced in longer term bonds. What's also interesting is in every other time where they've been above 20% for bills issuance, uh, bills amount outstanding, the yield curve has been extremely steep. Yeah. And this is the first time that they're above 20% and the curve is historically inverted. So there's just no way they can maintain you know, significant bills issuance relative to bonds. And in a $500 billion uh, um, quarterly deficit, um, they're going to have to issue a lot of bonds. Yeah, so you get a mortgage and 
you get a one-year mortgage, borrow one-year mortgage, a hypothetical example, for 1% or a 30-year mortgage for 5%, you're going to want to get that 1%. And so when yields collapse, you have a financial crisis, as you say, government issues a lot of bills. Now it's the opposite. Now short-term yields a lot more. So it's, it's a lot expensive. So, you know, Andy, I think maybe you use the word peculiar or interesting. Michael, you go a lot further. You actually say, no, this is shadow quantitative using shadow yield curve control. Can you make that case for, for us? And then I want to get Andy's reaction. Yeah, I mean, what what I was uh, actually going to say a second ago was that, you know, a lot of these things sound kind of wonkish because we're looking at uh, treasure issuance patterns, what the treasurer is thinking about, uh, how the calendar is going to look, et cetera. But actually, they're critically important. And I think that, you know, more and more investors are going to try and understand these things because, you know, for example, as Andy says, if, uh, you know, if you've got a situation where Janet is uh, is trying to manipulate uh, finances right now with the eye 15 months ahead of an election, she's doing it now. She's going to do it again, presumably. So there's uh, we, we, we've got to watch this space pretty closely. O- on the other hand, if there's a problem about the integrity of the banking system, uh, they're going to keep liquidity levels up. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is really the issue. Now, what I was getting at when I said that uh, I, I think I coined the phrase, uh, you know, some time ago to say that what's going on is uh, not QE, QE, and not yield curve control, yield curve control. So in other words, that underlying um, the authorities, uh, the Treasury and the Fed are kind of doing these things, but they're kind of calling them something else. They're sort of moving the goalposts a little bit. Now, as regards QE, uh, my definition of QE is all about liquidity, um, and whether they're putting liquidity in the system or whether they're taking it out, uh, regardless of how that arises, whether it's through um, letting bonds roll off, whether it's buying bonds, whether it's uh, discount window borrowing or whatever, the net is what they're doing with liquidity. And therefore, I would argue that the QT process actually halted. Even though bonds may still be rolling off the balance sheet, uh, liquidity is not being taken out of the system. And therefore, I would say that QE formally or, or de facto has ended. As regards the yield curve control point, what I would argue is that this is not explicit yield curve control as we were used to in the US back in the 1940s and early 50s. And it's not yield curve control as we've seen in Japan or in Australia. But it clearly is attempts to try and manipulate the structure or, or the term structure of the bond market uh, outside of what the private sector does. For example, uh, the scale of bill issuance, as Andy says, it's unusual. It's certainly unusual to do it when the yield curve is inverted, as we as we can see now. Uh, also, what you've got is attempts, deliberate attempts, to get the RRP down. There is direct marketing to the money market funds of uh, specific tenors that they favour. There is talk, and I uh, stress it's talk, about doing treasury buybacks uh, next year, which is an attempt to increase liquidity in parts of the curve. Uh, These are sort of subtle attempts to manipulate the term structure. And they come into my remit of calling it being called yield curve control. Uh, What's What's interesting about that, so I agree with every word you said. And what's interesting about it is you never really mentioned the Fed doing any of those things. Janet, doing the QE, Janet, yeah. Janet has the lever. That's the unusual, The if you walk away from this thing at all, Janet Yellen is controlling the yield curve. QT is just the Fed saying, we're going to let our bonds mature. How they get financed how they get paid back is entirely in the hands 
of the choices the Treasury makes in terms of its issuance. And so I agree by firstly spending down the TGA, so doing no issuance during the debt ceiling, and then choosing in May to issue bills, we've had, we will have had nine months of yield curve control, not QE, QE, totally unrelated to the Federal Reserve and its actions by Janet Yellen. Okay. On, on the assumption that the bank term funding program is a joint effort, I'll come quietly and agree with you. Yeah, that was, okay. I'll give you that one. Totally with you on that one. But that was small. Yeah, so Jay Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, uh, Treasury Secretary, U.S. Treasury, used to be the Federal Reserve. Officially, right, the Central Bank Federal Reserve is an independent entity. So the actions of either you know adding liquidity or not taking away liquidity uh, Andy, you're saying that is the Treasury, and if you combine the Treasury and the Federal uh, Reserve and just call them the U.S. government, sure, that is adding liquidity. But if you separate them as officially it is done, it's not the Federal Reserve, it's the Treasury. Michael, are you on board with that? But the important part of that statement is it isn't the Treasury's job. Yes. Yeah, okay. I, I, we, we agree. I mean, I'm, I sort of come from the background, which probably says that you know, I'm maybe more, I'm going to say, a conspiracy theorist, but I tend to believe there's not really a great division between uh, uh, central banks and finance ministers anyway. I think there's a lot of cooperation going on globally. I'm not saying that the, the Fed is, uh, the Fed and the Treasury are necessarily different in this regard. Uh, I think one point of disagreement is about the Treasury buyback as well as monetary inflation or ma- massive infl- inflation. Uh Michael, do you want to make that that case? The issue is that with the Treasury buyback, I mean, the the question is we don't really know. I mean, it's it's been mooted. That's what they'll do. Uh, what that really means is that the Treasury uh, is planning next year to actually buy back what would be stale issues uh, at various tenors and replace those. In other words, in in bond parlance. Uh, they'd be buying off the run and replacing those with on the run treasuries. Those tend to be uh, they tend to trade at higher prices and they're more liquid. Institutions, for whatever reason, prefer newly issued bonds. Uh, that particular process will expand market liquidity as opposed to funding liquidity. But there may be some you know some some follow through on the funding side too. But you know the key point I would say is that they've got the opportunity and there is the hint that they will replace. Uh, longer duration with shorter duration issues. Now we don't know that yet, and uh, that's just an assertion I'm making. But uh, you know, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating on that regard. So that that's what the Treasury buyback effectively means. But it clearly is a novel way of improving market liquidity. I've seen Treasury buybacks before. This is not a new thing. Um, the objective in a Treasury buyback is to take off the runs and replace them with on the runs. It is not, or hasn't been, a um, way of buying uh, old 10-year bonds and replacing them with bills, which would be um, not QEQE. Um, it would be yield curve control. Um, that hasn't been what they have done. In addition, they also have quite a bit of interest in the very short end of the curve, managing the timing of various cash flows, which would have impact on the bills market and nothing else. But um, Michael's right. It's anything is possible, and if they feel like they want to buy bonds and 
not and sell bills to fund them because they can't print money in the same they can't create reserves in the same way that the fed can the fed can just buy bonds in the market the treasury needs to finance them and so they have to issue something or spend some of their attack the tga um so i think that's again it's possible um it would once again be unusual that in a period of time in which the uh, Fed is explicitly not doing QE for them to engage in QE, uh, for the Treasury to then engage in QE, it would also be unusual if um, the Fed was engaging in asset purchases that the Treasury would get in their way and also bid up bonds. So it, it just doesn't make sense to me, but you know, anything's possible. Yeah, I mean, we, we're clearly living in strange times, so we kind of agree with that. And I think the you know the other point that Andy was making about the issuance calendar and the size going forward, I think this is becoming a worrisome development. I mean, if we if we're talking about potentially two trillion uh, in deficits uh, going forward, I mean these these are big numbers to fund, and this is the this is the the, the problem that I think the authorities have got now. Uh, you know, let's uh, let's just emphasize that uh, you know in these comments, I'm not hitting against the U.S. because the U.S. is the cleanest shirt in the laundry here. Uh, other countries are in a terrible situation compared with the U.S. So you know, in in relative terms, the U.S. is in pretty good shape here. But there is still an absolute problem. The absolute problem is the size of the deficits are clearly huge relative to experience. Uh, Two trillion funding every year for the next decade, which is what the the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office is slating, are big numbers. And the question is, how does that get done without the explicit involvement of the Federal Reserve? Now, just before we get there, one of the things I think we need to, to, to address is the fact that there hasn't been a lot of coupon issuance over the last few years, for whatever reason, relative to the demand for coupons. Uh, in other words, there's a shortage of collateral. And that is one of the things that is causing the yield curve to invert. And that's why I think it's giving uh, economists the wrong message about whether the economy is going into recession or not. Uh, I don't think it is going into a particularly significant recession. It's probably slowing down. But I think there are other things going on. Now, one of those things is if you take the level of fiscal spending, which is what uh, Andy just alluded to earlier on, it's clearly uh, pronounced. And there's if the if the federal government is spending, the private sector is getting cash flow. Now, one of the unusual features you've got at the moment is, if, particularly if you look at the curve and you look at what corporations are paying uh, for their debt. Uh, actually, for the last few months, that hasn't changed very much, despite the fact that the Fed has hiked rates, uh, you've got the unusual situation where a number of corporations are basically sitting on huge cash piles, which they're investing at the front end of the curve. And so they're picking up net revenues. And at the uh, around the middle of the curve, there's a, the, a lot of corporations have sort of gone down the curve to fund. They're not funding at the front end as they used to it's many years ago. They're probably funding at mid-duration. And that cost hasn't changed dramatically. So actually, the inverted yield curve, paradoxically, is probably a net positive for the cash flow of the US corporate sector. And that is the kind of irony here, uh, looking forward. It's not the constraint that it used to be in terms of economic activity. Uh, Now, that's one point. Second point is that the scale of the negative hit to term premia uh, particularly at the 10-year level, is give, must be giving us a heads-up warning to say that 
you know, the performance of the bond market looking forward is not going to be great because you've got the potential of this term premium reverting back to normal levels, particularly if issuance goes up. And then you've got the third point connected with this as well, which is how do they fund in the medium term when you've got two trillion of deficits to to uh, uh, to sort of to uh, wade through? And who are the buyers? Are the Chinese and the Japanese going to come in on the scale they used to? Uh, is the private sector uh, going to want to fund without yields going up substantially more? Does it mean the Federal Reserve has got to come in? These are clearly critical questions. We lean to the third of those and say, well, the Federal Reserve is probably going to have to come back. And I want your reaction to the Federal Reserve is going to have to come back to the taps and, and do QE. Also, inverted yield curve, that whether they predict recessions or cause recessions, I know you, you challenge that. And also, do you uh, agree with Michael's term of just because there's term premium in the, in the bond market, that means that there's a collateral shortage? Right. I don't want to get into involved in the collateral shortage thing. What Michael was talking about is bonds for uh, available. He wasn't talking about Jeff Schneider bills collateral for levering up things. He was talking about ownership of assets. I okay. Think. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Um, now, uh, so I just want to get off of that topic um, because there is no. But, uh, collateral shortage. If people want to lever up their positions, they can. And in particular, one. By the way, as a side point, uh, Michael mentioned liquidity, and both both he and I look at liquidity in um, the private sector as being an important part of the uh, total liquidity picture. And a measure of that is the amount of private sector repo that's being done. And private sector repo is a investor who wants to take a levered position, um, gets financing typically from the same money market funds that um, that are buying bills and invested in the RRP, et cetera, through a broker, and buys a bond with you know two percent down um, and ninety eight percent borrowed money. And that amount has grown rapidly over the course of the last six months as animal spirits have driven a lot of demand for assets. So that is without a doubt on the upswing. I think it's reaching its capacity for investors to take on risk. But we'll see about that. That's just my opinion. Um, coming back to your point on uh, is it necessary for the um, Federal Reserve to purchase bonds uh, to stem the um, the uh, issuance size. My high-level point is it absolutely is not um, in that every dollar that the private the government borrows and spends becomes a dollar of savings that the private sector can use to buy those bonds. And so that circles through the economy constantly and doesn't require a another participant like the Federal Reserve. Um, now, that said, it has an impact on the clearing price of assets. And so without the Fed, asset prices will be lower. With the Fed, asset prices will be higher. I don't know what the Fed's objective would be if the economy is doing just fine to support asset prices, I could see where it might be if you know we were back at zero interest rates and the economy was struggling um, in a deflationary, recessionary period that the 
the the Fed would then engage in activities like quantitative easing and asset purchases because they've run out of other tools. But we're really just talking about when you think about forward quantitative easing, we're talking about whether it's necessary. And I think the answer is no, unless there's a policy reason to change the level. And I don't see the policy reason evolving when the economy is strong. Um, and I, but I do think if the economy, you know, significantly weakens that it's a, and again, rates go back to zero, that it's a likely outcome. Yeah. F- final point, I promise, Andy, on the collateral shortage is I think, yeah, uh, it, repo financing is happening. And uh, I think repo fails is at a very, very you know, low ebb. And also you made the point uh, during the debt ceiling that the reason that these very short-term treasuries were trading at a huge uh, uh, discount, so yields are higher, is because they wouldn't get paid at the debt ceiling. Uh, you know, uh, Other people, Jeff Snyder, said it was collateral shortage. I, I think that the, uh, you know, the recent history does definitely... Uh, validate and support your view, in, in my opinion. But I want to ask you about repo, not the liquidity of repo, but just why people would do it in an inverted yield curve. So so interest rates are at zero. Uh, uh, you, you can borrow repo at, at 20 basis points, let's say, and to buy a 10-year treasury yielding 2%. That's a good trade. Oh, now you can buy a, a high-yield uh, bond yielding 4%, 5%. That's a very positive carry. But when you're borrowing short-term at five point now 5% after you know, Jay Powell, Federal Reserve, raised interest rates yesterday, to buy a 10-year bond yielding, what, lower than that if it's just treasuries? If you add a credit spread on top of that, maybe you're breaking even, maybe you're getting a little bit of thing. Now you're buying stocks at you know quite rich valuations, in, in, in my opinion. Why, is, why are people levering up and doing so much repo if we have an inverted yield curve? I thought the whole point of an inverted yield curve is that it kills that repo trade. Right. So, um, animals, so the important thing about carry is um, it allows, when you have positive carry and you are bullish long-term assets and financing them short-term, you get the best of both worlds. You get um, capital appreciation if you're right on its direction, and a pos- every day you get a positive interest rate differential. Um, and so you can be patient with longs when the yield curve is um, um, positively sloped. It doesn't mean that you can't make money being levered long bonds or levered long stocks for that instance, for that matter, when um, yield curves are inverted. Um, but you just have to be a little bit more careful on timing or more slightly more right. And um, that's an interesting question. So the high level question is, why are people levering up? The um, private sector is levering up. Um, Oddly, banks are who are one of the biggest owners of bonds are have been selling until the BTFP program came in very aggressively. Asia, Asia, uh, central banks selling, the Treasury issuing. We talked about that uh, to fund QT. Um, the buyer has really just been levered longs because hedge funds are by and large flat, short Treasuries and long either cash treasuries or long uh, corporates or and hedging. So why are, is the public sector, you know, the private sector investor group levering up? I think it's quite simple. Um, their animal spirits are saying that the, they're going to get significant capital appreciation in assets. And the risk of owning a portfolio of assets is about as low as it's been in years. And so let me just go off on that. Michael mentioned the MOVE index, which is the 
index of uh, one measure of volatility of the bond market. All measures of volatility of the bond market are down, well off their recent highs. In addition, I'm sure you've seen all of, everyone's seen this, the VIX index and pretty much any measure of realized volatility or implied volatility on equities uh, is down a lot, like really, really low. And unlike in 2022, when bonds and stocks provided no diversification benefit, meaning they both went down together, they both went up together, but mostly they both went down together. <clears throat> At this stage, when stocks go up, bonds go down, and when bonds go up, stocks go down, and the correlation, the diversification benefit of owning a 60-40 portfolio is much, much better than it has been. When you add all those things up, low individual asset volatility, both in equities and fixed income, and high correlation um, diversification benefit, it makes sense to lever up your portfolio because the aggregate risk of your portfolio is quite low. And so we've seen that. Even though it's expensive, um, low risk, animal spirits, drives a lot of asset moves. And you can see that involved targeting funds um, who, who literally do that thing where they lever up when vol expectations are low. Um, and all manner of other types of investors that shadow um, vol targeting. Yeah, I just want to clarify, I think this is true. When you say it has a low risk, you're referring to uh, risk as a proxy for volatility uh, on a very short-term basis. So there, because these assets are moving a lot less a day, uh, you know, every day, you can put greater size on. This is not a oh, in three years there's no risk. That that type of thing. Michael, now can you lay out your bull case for equities, uh, which you laid out to me earlier this year? So far, it has, it has aged quite well. Liquidity, falling inflation, uh, has really supported equity markets. Why do you expect that to continue? Okay, let let me can I just address one point that um, uh, about the previous discussion. I mean the 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 point I'd make is that the size going back to this point about uh, why the Fed has to come in is the size of deficits matters uh, certainly to to the level of rates and if you start to get huge increases in deficits that may have um, let's say uncertain an uncertain funding future in other words you don't know who's going to buy. And the private sector is forced to come in, the domestic private sector, if foreigners are not going to buy this, this increased issuance. The market will clear. That's not a question. The question is, what rate does it clear at? And is that rate acceptable to the Treasury? Uh, you know, that there must be a there must be a cost there because their interest bill is then going to start to escalate if the cost of debt goes up. Now, one of the problems is there's a lot of funding, as as we've been pointing out. Uh, at the shorter end of the curve, which makes this even more uh, even more of an issue, perhaps. So the general cost of funding means that there may well have to be attempts to keep the level of interest rates down. And that's why I'm saying that you need uh, the US to come in and cooperate on this, and maybe to uh, to be the marginal buyer uh, or buyer of buyer of last resort in terms of, uh, of, of bonds. So that that's my point. And the size of the deficit and of the funding uh, strain going forward is so significant that I think the numbers don't add up. Uh, you know, the Congressional Budget Office numbers are uh, a pretty decent uh, stab at what's going on, but I think they look pretty conservative to me. I mean, the, the problems 
even worse because the scale of the mandatory spending increase in the US uh, is just skyrocketing. And the tax base is uh, not growing at the same anything like the same pace. So that that's that's the issue. Now, um, to to come on to the uh, to the inflation uh, backdrop and the equity market, my I mean I take a very simple view maybe of what drives stocks. I think stocks are driven by two things. One is more liquidity, and the other is lower inflation. And I am not a believer in the fact that the equity market. Uh, operates uh, closely with the fixed income market. I think they're very separate. There was a close arbitrage for a number of years, but that was a period when inflation was, uh, let's say, falling predictable and low. I think in we're, we're in an environment now where inflation is less certain. Uh, you've got potential volatility in inflation. And certainly since that period, there's been a noticeable decoupling uh, between the stock market and the bond market. And what is uh, what seems to work over the very long term? And you know, I've I've uh, put up charts on social media or to our clients, which show the long term relationship between the equity market, the pricing on the equity market, the P multiple, and um, uh, and inflation. Now, the the chart that you see here is actually the uh, a chart showing underlying inflation in the U.S. This is data which goes right back uh, to uh, pre-World uh, War II. So it goes right back into the 1920s, in fact. And it looks at the amount of equities that are held relative to liquid assets. The P in that ratio is the equity holdings. The L is, uh, is the amount of liquid assets in the US economy. And what it tries to show is that the inflation rate is critical to the level of equities that are held. Now, um, that's really a process. And this one here that you can see is a companion one that actually uses the data uh, that came from the Robert Schiller website. Uh, so anyone can download this data. And it basically looks at five-year underlying inflation in the US and the five-year CAPE uh, from that database. And what it's trying to show is that the equity market likes um moderate and low inflation, and what it does not like is high inflation and deflation. And that's when you get deratings. Now, when the equity market and the bond market are correlated, it tends to be periods when you've got uh, falling inflation uh, from high levels, such as the period from the 1970s through until the late 1990s. Um, And that's broadly what has been going on. Outside of those periods, there's a significant decoupling. So my view is that what you've got, and this is maybe a sort of a a view for the future, what I would argue is for the last decade, what you've seen is stable inflation rates. So in other words, that um, the the equity holdings, uh, equity portfolios have been pretty uh, stable in terms of the asset allocation because of that stable inflation rate. But the liquidity cycle has been actually quite pronounced over the last decade for various reasons that we've climbed out of the GFC. If you look forward, what you've got is uh, those two things are going to be transposed. Inflation is much more likely to be volatile uh, over the next decade or so, whereas liquidity, the other driving factor, is likely to be more steady and maybe even trending higher for the reasons I alluded to. So it's a very different dynamic. So in other words, the asset allocation decision has got to focus very much on what's happening to future inflation rates. Uh, Andy, um, 
so you're bearish. You've been bearish on all assets, bonds, but but as well as stocks. Uh, how much does inflation factor into that? Because I think it, it makes sense. Okay, if inflation is negative, you have deflation, a recession. Stocks are not going to do well, obviously. And then inflation is at ten percent. Yeah, stocks are not going to do well as well. You need that Goldilocks of two to three percent. Inflation has fallen back down uh, substantially. What what's your pushback about uh, why you know you think stocks are not a good risk reward now? Right. So I want to be clear about this. I've been saying this since the beginning um, of this uh, view, which was is about six months old and it's fine. Um, I don't have a view on equities by itself, and I don't have a view on bonds by itself. I have a view on a portfolio of bonds and equities. And so the fact that equities are up and bonds are down, as long as they're down more than the equities are up, I win. And if equities are down and bonds are up, and equities are down more than bonds are up, I win. That's my bet. It's not really taking it. I, I cannot make a view on one or the other asset at this stage. Um, I'm coming around to that point of view, and we can get to that in a, in a moment. But up till now, that's been my view, which is the pricing of earnings growth, earnings growth, and uh, multiples on equities, and the pricing of short-term interest rates, in particular um, 2024 cuts, can't coexist. And that's really been my bet, that in order to have the 150 basis points of interest rate cuts in, um, by the way, they're getting crushed right now. Um, oh, are they? which is good for me, um, 150 basis points of cuts in 2024 um, getting um, uh, being realized means that earnings have to suffer a lot. And that could be a combination of what Michael's saying, which is slowing of inflation, disinflation, which hits the top line, or it could be margins as um, wages end up being sticky while top line falls. Um, but one way or the other, you have to see stocks earnings fall and their prices and multiples likely fall to get the sort of reaction in two year notes. Now, at the same time, um, that price might be wrong. The two year bond price might be wrong and they're going to hike. They're going to keep rates at five and a half percent for the next two years. OK, I'll make money on that. But in that environment where. Uh, interest rates are at five and a half percent. I would expect earnings to far exceed expectations, current expectations, and that's bullish equities. So I don't care where I make my money, but I'd like to make it in the relative value of those two trades. And I think that's the best opportunity in markets as we, it's changing as we speak, but the best opportunity in markets that exists out there right now um, is to take a short in both. Um, now, if you gun to my head, um, I've been saying consistently that a higher for longer nominal GDP um, um, strength that we've experienced over the last six months was good for equities and terrible for bonds. And at some point, when bonds start reversing um, and experience that terrible, um, I disagree with Michael. I think term premium is arbitraged across all markets. And I think uh, 
the yield on long-term assets has to be compared across all assets. But I agree with him completely that the reason why equities and bonds are, are diverging like they have has everything to do with inflation and not what we've experienced in the past um, 40 years of relatively either steadily declining inflation. Um, anyway, the point being that um, you know that's been positive for equities. You ask why I don't go long equities? Well, I'm not sure that this higher for longer thing is going to resolve well. And I think the bond market could ultimately sell off substantially and take the legs out of multiples. So equities are sort of not that interesting in that environment. So that trade, uh, Andy, you've affectionately called it short short twos and spoos. And the environment we've been in higher for longer, very, very bad for bonds, particularly shorter term, you know, the two-year note, which you say is uh, selling off significantly today, uh, the day after uh, uh, Fed Chair uh, Powell raised rates. Michael, what do you make of the short twos and spoos trade? And also, a lot, the shorting the twos, the reason that's worked so well is not only are more hikes being have been priced in, but the cuts have been priced out. Uh, but there still are a lot of cuts being priced into 2024. I think you and uh, a point of agreement between you, Michael, and Andy is that the economy is actually you know somewhat resilient and, and robust. If that's the case, are interest rates still going to be at 5.5% in you know December of 2024, if not even higher? Yeah, I think this is a valid point. I, di- I just want to add one point to uh, uh, to finish off that that earlier debate. I mean, the reason that I that I say that there is less connectivity between the, the stock and bond markets is the question to say is who is doing the arbitrage. Now, if you go back uh, a decade, two decades, there are a lot of uh, long term funds, uh, both in Europe and in the US, that were doing the arbitrage between stocks and bonds. That is less true now. Uh, a lot of pension funds are basically becoming much, much more uh, bond uh, bond funds because of uh, uh, the, the the pension structure or the aging aging demographics means that you're much nearer the payout on pension funds. Uh, if you look at the US 401k funds, as I understand, uh, something like 85% of them are actually invested in target life funds where there's no asset allocation. So what I'm saying is that there's a there's a different dynamic going on, which probably means that arbitrage is rather less. So I tend to think of the two markets more separately now than certainly I did. Now, on the question of, uh, uh, of the economy and the rate structure, uh, I think one of the things we may well agree on, uh, as I think we do, is that the economy is a lot less interest rate sensitive than it was. There's a whole re- you know, raft of reasons why that is. Uh, one of the things that I alluded to earlier was that the US corporate sector is uh, now probably net cash positive. And in terms of the impact of an inverted yield curve, it's probably positive on uh, on corporate cash flows, if anything. I mean, that's the, the irony in this whole situation. Uh, you've got demographics, which basically mean that uh, there's not the big, uh, there's not a big constituency for buying consumer durables on credit, uh, which means the economy is less uh, interest rate sensitive from that regard. And clearly, we know that the service economy is becoming dominant, which is yet another reason. So I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of facts which mean that uh, uh, you know the, we don't have interest rate sensitive uh, sensitivity. I mean, after all, look, I mean the Fed has had rates pretty much on the floor for 15 years, and we didn't get the sort of economic booms that you might expect uh, if the economy was that interest rate sensitive. So I don't think it is. 
Uh, I don't think the economy is going down uh, anything like as uh, as severely as people would say. I think the yield curve is a distorted indicator for the reasons I've said. It's all about term premium, as Andy has also alluded to. So I think these are, these are uh, valid arguments against. And if you're getting a soft landing or even no landing in the economy, um, you know why should rates be slashed? Uh, you know this is a, I think a key reason. And after all, at the end of the day, I mean, my contention for many years now is the problem we got into, the, the, these problems, all come back to a massive debt load, debt overhang, that the world economy suffers, which was basically incentivized by having rates at very low levels for far too long. Uh, that's a distortion. That is the key distortion. And we cannot go back to that world. So why on earth should central banks slash rates? I just don't think there's any need, and I don't think they're going to do it. In your world, uh, Michael, in 2024, the Federal Reserve will be doing quantitative easing because long-term interest rates can't be allowed to, to get that high. In your world, Andy, the long-term interest rates do go go that far. And you have a, a various, what you call this, a script, a, a script for a play or a movie. And, and Act 2 or Act 3, uh, Andy, is when long-term interest rates go up. So basically, you have similar views on the economy and bonds, that it's a bare case for bonds. But Michael, at some point, you think the Federal Reserve will... Uh, revert to objective, bona fide quantitative easing. I think the 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 natural course. Well, let, let's not say the Federal Reserve. What I what I would. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not suggesting that you're going to get another bout of extreme QE. I think that what you're going to get is uh, necessarily for cyclical reasons. I think the Federal Reserve is going to become a much more important player for the reasons I said over the medium term because uh, of the fiscal problems. And you know, as I probably said. In uh, you know, in terms of a sort of byline that they spent you know much of the last few months bailing out U.S. banks, and they're going to have to bail out the government uh, in the future. So I think there's the, you know one's got to bear in mind that. But I'm not saying there's going to be a cyclical surge of Fed liquidity. That that's that's definitely not uh, you know part of uh, part of our argument. What I'm saying is that global liquidity is expanding, and that could easily come, or it's much more likely to come from the private sector. One of the reasons that. The, uh, the liquidity will be coming back in is that you know the economy has been slowing. Oil prices are much lower than they were. Uh, these are factors which release liquidity from the real economy back into financial markets. This is a normal course of events. And you know, on my reckoning, what you're going to get is a peak in the liquidity cycle sometime around 2025, 2026. And I think from a risk asset point of view, what that means is you're going to have the wind uh, at your back rather than facing the wind, which we've been doing for much of the last uh, 18 months, two years. So I just think the risk assets look still pretty attractive on the basis that inflation doesn't rear its ugly head in the next 12 months, particularly significantly. uh, I think equities can keep going up. Uh, nominal GDP should be, you know, should be fairly decent, which is not a bad background. I still think margins may be under pressure, but not sufficiently to cause a, a major collapse in earnings. So maybe that's where Andy and I differ. Uh, but broadly, I'm sort of constructive about the economy. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of scope for further growth. And if you look at the service economy, which is what I think is, you know, clearly dominant uh, in the U.S., uh, service spending is still below the underlying trend. Uh, that was established pre the COVID crisis. It's climbing back, but it's not yet back on trend. So there's still scope for more growth. Would you say, Michael, that your bull case on equities depends somewhat on there being a soft landing economically? 
Not, not necessarily, because I think that at the end of the day, I mean, the argument that uh, we've we've been putting forward is part of the bull case is that inflation comes down. Uh, I think the the P multiple is what drives the equity market in the in the near term, and the near term I'm saying is over a two three year period. And providing that inflation comes down and remains low, I think that's the that's the key element. Now, my concern medium term is that inflation becomes more volatile. But I think over the uh, over the period we're talking about, inflation will come down, and that may be a positive surprise. I think there's a lot of momentum downwards in in the inflation measures, and I'm not uh, you know I'm not in the camp that says you're going to get a sudden reversal of that. Got it. And sorry, just to, just to press you, Michael. So earlier you said that the Federal Reserve will help with the debt because there's going to be a ton of Treasury issuance, but. Did you say the Federal Reserve will do QE, or are you saying, no, it could be the Treasury helping out, and it could be kind of some sort of shadow, non-explicit QE, such as perhaps we have now? Well, it could be, but I think that, you know, I think at the end of the day, I mean, the, the answer is, is, is liquidity going to expand? Uh, yes, it is. Is the Federal Reserve going to participate in that? Most probably it will. Uh, do you call that QE? I mean, that may be, you know, dancing on the head of a pin. But probably, in my terms, it is because they're expanding their balance sheet. Yeah, uh, will they will they be able to roll off treasuries? Well, maybe they they could do some. Yeah, I'll uh, I would agree with that. But I still think that the balance sheet, the effective part of the balance sheet, what is dubbed Fed liquidity, will expand uh, over the next um, um, let's say eighteen months. I'm optimistic on that. It, there won't may not be a surge in that, but I think generally speaking, liquidity is going up. Uh, global liquidity is going up. And I think that's the positive for markets. Got it. Andy, do you think that liquidity is, is going to continue to increase uh, in the future? So I think that uh, that's going to have a lot to do with animal spirits and whether the markets um, can maintain these uh, the economic conditions that are going on right now, which is a combination of lack of supply of, of long-term bonds and low price volatility, which encourages private sector levering up. And from a central bank standpoint, I see n- nothing on the horizon that would indicate that the Fed is going to increase its balance sheet, but it's also only slowly decreasing its balance sheet. So, you know, to, in my view, QT is not adequate to do the job of fighting inflation. Um, but, you know, I don't have a strong view. I have a strong view that the, the Fed is not going to increase its balance sheet. I have a strong view that the uh, Treasury has a lot of bonds for sale and also a lot of money to be um, handed to the private sector. Um, and so, you know, I look at all of those factors and what the risk level of each of those things are and what people are using, what people who receive the money and what people who spend the money are doing. And, you know, what Michael said over uh, in terms of his outlook is something I just don't participate in. I don't know. I don't have any confidence in my outlook. Um, for and everything Michael said makes plenty of sense to me. I just don't know. So you know, my view is to try to understand what's actually happening and try to have a playbook for how it happens. And my view is that the uh, NG that wages in particular, labor. And liquidity, which is the amount of, uh, in my metric in the United States, it's the amount of reserves and um, RRP that's available, um, which is a shadow or an echo of the high amount of fiscal spending is going to keep the economy, the NGDP of the economy strong. Um, So 
that outlook is actually, you know, fairly constructive on um, equities in particular, but really, really bad for bonds. And so as long as that continues and there isn't a supply shock, we're going to be in what I call the higher for longer um, infinity scenario where nominal GDP stays high, bond mark bonds stay relatively bid, which keeps the multiple bid for equities and the earnings um, uh, beating expectations. Um, But I'm paying attention to the potential for a catalyst that could unlock a lot of, and this is not an 18 month thing, this is in the next six months, looking for a catalyst that could result in term premiums on bonds expanding, yields on bonds expanding, the multiple on equities contracting, which is would, would result in both equities and bond, long-term bonds falling in price, which would have a wealth effect, which would hit demand. And if demand gets hit, earnings will come in a little bit. And then you could actually see some weakness in the job market, but not until then. Until you get the equities down both in a multiple standpoint and an earnings expectation standpoint, these people don't fire anybody. Firing lags weakness in the equity market. And when that happens, but and you won't get weakness in the equity market as long as bonds are bid. So I'm paying a heavy amount of attention to the supply and demand of long-term treasuries. <clears throat> and as long as the supply stays as long as the market remains undersupplied, equities are fine. 5.5% interest rates from the Fed, not enough to tame inflation, slow the economy. Quantitative tightening, not enough to tame the uh, tame inflation, slow the economy. The only thing or one of the few things uh, that's plausible, Andy, is to, to slow the economy is Treasury issuing that coupon security. So you're, you're going to be very, paying very close attention. Oh, uh, you know, Janet Yellen saying we're not we're going to issue fewer bills and more treasuries that you think could be a catalyst for equity weakness. Well, as Michael said, it's inevitable. They can't issue bills forever and they have two trillion dollars of QT plus deficit to fund. They're going to be issuing coupons. It may not be this week. It may not be next quarter, but it's coming. And when it does, bonds will they may be lower in yield or higher in yield than they are today. But the term premium will come out when those new bonds come for sale. And when the term premium comes out, that'll put an impact on equity multiples. I don't know when it happens. I'm just paying attention. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the term premium factor, I think is something we agree on. It's, it's a critical, it really is a critical question because of this, you know, the huge negative term premium that you've got, they can only go up. And if they go up, they basically push, they, they cause yields to spike. And that's why I'm negative on the on the fixed income markets for sure. I think that's that's the hurdle they've got to get over. But you know, I think that um, you know the the other question, which is one which you know begs a question that begs about the dollar, is you know what does this mean for the dollar if you've got uh, uncertainty over the fiscal backdrop? Uh, you've got a Federal Reserve that uh, maybe is uh, is not is not creating the recession that people were were expecting. How does the dollar move? And I think one of the one of the other interesting points, but it may take another another program to to answer this, is this upcoming challenge to the dollar that is slated to come in August next month, which is basically about the BRICS currency unit, the gold backed currency that they're issuing. 
And I think one of the things to sort of throw in a thought, and I, I'd be very interested in what Andy, if Andy's got a view on this, if you look at the chart, you can see what this shows is the challenge that has sort of come up from nowhere of the gold holdings of the BRICS and Friends. Now, what I did in constructing this chart was to look at US official gold holdings, which are just over 8,000 tons of gold hold at Fort Knox, et cetera, and the orange line, which is basically what the BRICS economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, also including the friends, those countries like the Saudis, the UAE, uh, you know, Kazakhstan that said they will likely join or want to join in with the BRICS club. That's their holdings of gold. Now, actually, <laughs> spookily, uh, in September of or by September of this year, the stock of gold held by that grouping uh, will exceed US holdings. Now, does that tell us anything about the dollar? A number of people would say it does. And a number of people are banging the gong to say, this is a sort of uh, the, the peak of the dollar now. Uh, dollar's in decline. I disagree with that. But I think it's an added element of uncertainty. But with the backdrop of uncertainty about the fiscal outlook in the US, uh, this is something that may well matter a lot going forward. Andy? Yeah, I don't have a strong view on that particular event. Um, I do think that uh, that um, I only always look in cur at currencies as relative assets and what's going on generally in each economy. And you know, I'm not I I don't have a, currently I don't actually have a very strong view on any currency. Um, but if anything, I am concerned about what's happening in the Asian economy and think that absent um, stimulus, you're going to have weakening um, growth in both Japan and Asia relative to the rest of the world. And, um, you know, that begs for the potential for stimulus, and that's generally bearish the, the currency. Um, so, you know, if gun to my head, I'd rather uh, be short the yuan or the um or the yen than long, um, but you know anything can happen. And you know, right now I don't have very strong views. Yeah, well, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you both for joining us, uh, Andy. People can find you on Twitter at DampedSpring and uh, DampedSpring.com. And Michael, people can find you on Twitter at CrossBorderCap, and uh, your website is CrossBorderCapital.com. Thank you both again for uh, joining us, and thank you everyone for watching. It was a pleasure. Great, thank you. Thanks for watching. You've got to check out YCharts. Get that 15% discount at go.ycharts.com slash forward dash guidance. If you've been watching Forward Guidance, you know that I use YCharts all the time, not just for my data on macro and stocks, but for all my charting and presentations as well. So if you're in the investment business, wealth advisor, uh, investment manager, you need YCharts. It's a must. So check them out. And if you're an individual investor wanting to take it to the next level, YCharts can help you get to where you want to go, as it did for me. Again, I'm partnered with YCharts, and they are a dream sponsor. I, I love their brand. And I suspect that you might as well, too. So again, that link go.widecharts.com slash forward dash guidance. Thanks again. And until next time.